Welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us for this webcast, Bridging the Gap to Financial Wellness, sponsored by PayActive. This webcast has been pre-approved for HRCI and can be submitted for SHRM credit. Please be sure to attend the complete webcast in order to receive your credits. If you have any questions during the webcast, click on the Q&A tab in your webinar controls and type them there. A new tab will open in your browser with the webcast survey. Please be sure to complete it as soon as the webcast is ended. It is now my pleasure to turn it over to Safwan Shah for his presentation. Thank you, Hester. And thank you, HR.com, for arranging this uh, webinar. Uh, so the topic today is going to be bridging the gap to financial wellness. Uh, clearly, this is a very popular topic and a topic of great interest to a lot of HR executives, businesses, and just across board. And uh, there are many reasons for that. So today in this, uh, in this time that is allotted to me, I will go through a few slides and share with you a perspective, which I think will be both educational and will also leave you with ideas on how to implement financial wellness in the best possible way at your, at your workplace. So go, moving on to the next slide, and I presume everybody can see me. I'm the person at the right top corner of the screen. So the learning objectives today uh, are three. The first point that uh, I think is important and we, should, we will cover in detail is why, despite the growth in financial wellness offerings, are workers still unwell? And this is something that, you know, the word financial wellness has been talked about and is mentioned and you see signs at airports about financial wellness. You see ads in newspapers. So everybody is talking about financial wellness. Then why, despite its growth, at least uh, in marketing terms, why are workers in the United States still unwell? The second thing that I'll cover is how to identify what financial wellness really means to your workforce. And finally, the third point is more about how to take advantage of the knowledge is to select, identify the right financial wellness program, the program which will make the greatest impact on your employees' well-being and your company's success. So these are the three learning objectives and uh, I aim to cover um, information in all three categories and leave you with some very actionable steps. So moving on to the next slide, a little bit about me. Um, I am an aerospace engineer and I somehow ended up here. And the way it happened is that about 10, 12 years ago, I decided that I wanted to do something which was meaningful and impactful and which led me to this world of financial wellness. And for 10 years, I've been working in this area uh, with businesses across the United States. My own background is in fintech or financial technologies. And um, as an engineer, I've always looked at it in an ana analytical way. Uh, in my past lives, I was also a researcher. So I bring a perspective which I hope is valuable to you and helpful to you. I have some spent some time teaching as faculty at both Berkeley, uh, University of California and Santa Cruz. So, um, uh, so I'll take advantage of that training uh, while I talk to you. Uh, the few uh, pictures that you see in this slide labeled one, two, three, four, five are the way to look at it is these are 
links are pointers to things on the internet that you can find to learn more. So I, I have a book called It's About Time, which is about workplaces, workers, and the plight of the working poor and what businesses can do about it. Uh, so that's number one. Then I recently did a TED talk uh, last year uh, in September, and that TED talk is now out there. And if somebody has interest in going into the details of some of the stories related to why I do what I do, you can find it there. Uh, in the November, December issue of Harvard Business Review, which is the, I think the latest issue at this point, uh, there is a long article on uh, financial wellness impact with PayActive, which is the company I currently work with and um, that's my company. And then there is a documentary which is labeled number three and then there is a couple of other videos. So these are some of the things that I would point to you as useful material to uh, add to what I'm going to talk about today. So we do live in interesting times. Uh, I see that there are over a hundred people already logged in. So I thought it would be nice to start with something which says we live in interesting times and you may ask or wonder why. So let me show you. In the last year, which was 2020, there were 2.3 million new millionaires in the US, which is an 11% increase over the previous year. China had 22% increase, Switzerland had 28% increase, Canada had 14% increase, Brazil lost 22% of their millionaires. And apparently that was related to devaluation. And you can see this data. One would expect that in this complex year, and which is still ongoing, there may be a different uh, picture to paint, but there isn't. Uh, the number of millionaires grew in, in spades. Another little tidbit of this interesting year is, this is from QSR, the quick service restaurant uh, publication, the premier publication, that 100,000 restaurants closed in 2020 and many workers work in this industry. I thought it is important because one of the highest employers, the biggest employers in, in, uh, in America are the restaurant workers or the hospitality industry. So this data is from Credit Suisse. It's their global wealth report of 2020. So I thought it would be important to start with the pandemic and millionaires. Another thing that I wanted to bring to your attention is um, we talk about financial wellness, which you know, deep down really means something about money. And does money equate to happiness? So this is, these are, this is from the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. You don't get more prestigious than that. And this is just latest hot off the press. It came out just a couple of days ago. They did a study with about 34,000 people, adults in the US. And uh, their median age was 33. Household income was about $85,000. And just note that $85,000, which is the 25th percentile. And um, what they did was, instead of taking uh, you know, data from the past and asking questions, how did you feel? And, some situation, they actually gave them an app and you know, they actually call it a mood tracking app. And this was real time data. So they expressed their feelings as they felt them. And that was the method. And what is surprising 
and this study was very sort of uh, scientifically done. That, and the question was, does money really buy happiness? Turns out it does. And if you look at this chart, and I hope you can all see it, there is the circle at the 85, 75 to $85,000 level. People start saying that they feel happy. Those people who made less than that per year did not feel happy with the mood tracking app. So this was real-time data with a mood tracking app, and it was measured on issues like mood and life perception. And um, this is really a very, very interesting study. And when, when they were asked that why, uh, they said that when we have a little more money, we feel comfortable. And 74% said a semblance of control. We feel in control of our lives. So this is a very remarkable study. And I wanted these, uh, this to be kind of a basis as we build this discussion for the next few minutes. So now that we've de determined that the number of millionaires grew by 11% and money does buy happiness, let's get into financial wellness. So the first thing, the first learning objective is why despite the growth in financial wellness offering, our workers are still unwell. So I'll present to you three different ways to look at it. And I've taken this approach to kind of give you a foundation or a basis to build an argument as you in your workforce, in your observation, in your conversations, when you meet people, when you think about this from the, in the context of human resources and so forth, that what are the basis, the tenets of this why? There is an economic argument and you know, that argument could be people are not paid enough and so on and so forth. There is also a very important other argument, which is the behavioral advertising argument. That advertising has become so slick and sophisticated that it is able to make people take buying decisions when they ne don't necessarily need to buy. And I won't go into that, everybody has an opinion. But one can say with, uh, with certainty that advertising is irresistible when you are stressed. I have often, you know, ended up buying things with the sophistication and ease that is there to click and buy, you end up buying things when you are um, kind of stressed. And then there is the merit argument that people who don't go to college don't make enough money and they don't have any wage growth. And then there's a missing argument that are we doing everything right when we talk about financial wellness? And I will now take you through each one of these arguments. The first one is the economic argument. Once again, I, I've taken a screenshot of an article which was in Fast Company, which is a, which a reasonably well uh, respected publication. And they did an analysis, did an analysis of a study by RAND, which is one of the premier research uh, think tanks. And in that study, they studied a couple of things. They asked the question that what would happen if the growth between 1945, which is after the Second World War, to 1975 had occurred from 1975 to now, the same economic growth had occurred, then what would have happened to salaries at various levels? 
And uh, they did this study and it was a very, very detailed, exhaustive study and they published the results. So I went into the RAND website and read the paper and looked at this article. And um, in my next slide, I'll show you the findings. So what they found, so today for everyone's benefit, the median income in United States in 2018 is $50,000. That's the median. Now the average could be 80,000 or 90,000. When we say average, right, it could be, you know, you could take somebody who's you know, like a very tall person with somebody who's a short person. And you could say one person is seven foot tall, one person is five foot tall, the average would be six, but that's not the right way to look at it. You have to look at the median. So when you look at the median in 2018, it was $50,000. If the same growth that occurred from 1945 to 1975 had occurred for all income levels, then their median, the counterfactual, would have been $92,000. So where did $42,000 disappear? If you look at it that way and you continue looking at it, so you can see different levels of income. So someone who made $91,000 in 1975, in 2018, that someone is making $191,000. However, someone who was making $42,000 in 1975 is making only $50,000 in 2018. And I don't think it's any better in 2020. So this is remarkable. This is indicating to you that a, a large percent of the US workforce has not grown at all. And the money that they would have or could have made if the growth had been steady in these last three decades as compared to 45 to 75, those three decades, then they would have been at a totally different income level. Sounds crazy when you look at it this way, but this is data. Why and how and all that is not what I'm discussing. I'm just mentioning to you, pointing out to you that this is what happened. Income grew at the top 50% level pretty much linearly, but at the bottom 50% level, there has been a terrible, terrible uh, lack of growth. And that also makes financial wellness a very, very important topic. So moving on to the next slide. So that is the economic argument. And to summarize it, that's what it would mean if, uh, if people were, if a median of $92,000 translates to that. The second argument is the advertising argument. And what you see on your screen uh, are two different um, pictures. Uh, which summarize the data of advertising and marketing out there. So roughly the global advertising today is a, over a trillion dollars. And what you see on the left side, uh, at least left of my screen, is that in 2024, that number is supposed to be $633 billion. And this is the advertising you see on the internet and television and so on and so forth. And this number is steadily increasing. And this on the right side, what you see is that the ad revenue, obviously there was a little bit of a hit around the COVID timeframe, but overall this, there's a relentless 
growth in advertising. And there's a relentless improvement, significant improvement in the quality of how advertising works today. At what time to throw an ad, how to show context in ad, how to make people buy. And obviously it works in, in, in detrimental ways for people who are financially stressed, hence again, the need for financial wellness in some or form of fashion. So people can take better decisions when behaviorally, and I won't use the word manipulated, but I'll mention it. So advertising has that power today. So that is the advertising argument. The missing argument, which I think very, very important to understand, and I, I'll dig deeper into it in a few more slides, but when we talk about financial wellness, what do we really mean, right? It's, it's, it's kind of in a way a marketing term. But if you dig deeper, and from my experience for the last 10 years, looking at it, talking to people, working with businesses to institute financial wellness programs, what have I learned? My biggest learning that I would like to share with you is that financial wellness only begins after all livelihood needs are met. And that's the only way you can think about financial wellness. You see, we live in a world and a society that of haves and have nots, but there's another way to look at it. There, is, there are those people who, who are looking for liquidity or just small amount of money. And then th those people who are enjoying compounding, who are investing their money and watching it grow. So in a world divided between people seeking, searching, hunting for liquidity, versus people who are enjoying compounding. How do, you, how do you kind of reconcile the two? The number of people searching liquidity is growing astronomically. And those people are looking for liquidity because they need food, fuel, or money for auto to buy, drive a car to work and so forth. They want to buy various types of insurances to have protection and so on and so forth. And thriving only comes after surviving. We can only talk about genuine financial wellness if we want to be practical about it. We can use it as a marketing term all day long, but if you want to be really practical about it, there are people in our country who are looking for food and shelter in most cases. And for them, financial wellness is an aspiration. What their struggle is for food, fuel, auto, shelter, and so forth. And COVID has of course been um, very, very harsh on that segment of society. It has stripped many workers of jobs and so forth. So we may be taking the wrong medicine when we talk of financial wellness as this one size fits all. Maybe there are nuances, maybe there are subtleties to understanding financial wellness. And this is the key point that I want to make to you. I won't belabor on these things that 37 percent Americans don't have enough savings to cover a $500 emergency. This data has been talked about numerous times and you see it in every kind of publication. We also know that over 100 million people in the US and they could be making $100,000 a year are living paycheck to paycheck. And uh, you know, believe it or to me, it was stunning in, in March, of, uh, March, April, 2020, we did a survey to the businesses that we offer our services to related to financial wellness. And we asked them that, what are you afraid of? And they said, we are afraid of not having money. They were not afraid of the pandemic. So this is the time we live in. 
And so there is a missing argument of truly understanding what financial wellness is. What are the subtleties and nuances? What is it made of? Because one size doesn't fit all. So what is financial wellness? So this is the way I look at it. And you know, my team and I, and we've spent so much time thinking about it. This is the way we look at it. First of all, financial wellness only begins after all livelihood needs are met. For some of you, this would remind you of the Maslow Triangle, and that would be the right way to think about it. Maybe we have to go back to basics and ask some basic questions. We have to do that you know, every few decades, it's useful to do that. And we need to understand financial wellness for what it means. And I use the word livelihood for a very particular reason, because it means securing basic necessities of life. And you could, you know, food, fuel, auto, shelter, water, all those things are what people are struggling for. So if we think of a framework to look at financial wellness, we need to ask what the user is really looking for, the associate, the employee, so forth. Are they suffering from you know, dealing with payday loans, late fees? So it kind of goes from red to green. This is the journey of getting from you know, some kind of wellness. And it usually starts with needless debt. It usually involves some kind of tiny financial shock and incomes are very volatile if you're an hourly worker. Uh, one of the examples I give to people when they talk of hourly workers, as some of you may know, that 59% of the US workforce is hourly workers, which means they clock in, clock out. An interesting thing that many people don't understand about hourly workers is that every month their wages can be slightly different. A salaried person would make, let's say, $5,000 a month. So whether it's January, February, March, April, they'll make $5,000 a month. But an hourly worker, will have different number of hours in different months. Some months have five weekends, so 10 days are lost. Some months have five weekends and one or two national holidays. So 11 or 12 days are lost. So their months can be 19 days of work, 20 days of work, 21 days of work. So for instance, August is a 31 day month. July is a 31-day month, but September is a 30-day month. So in those months, their incomes can fluctuate by almost 10%. And when incomes fluctuate 10% and you're living paycheck to paycheck, which is like living on a tightrope, then a tiny financial shock will tip you over. And this is why it is very important to understand that financial wellness means different things for people in different states, states and stages of their overall income level. If they're hourly worker, hourly full-time, gig worker, everything is different. One size doesn't fit all. The budgeting tools that are designed for salaried people do not necessarily work for people who are working hourly in gigs and freelancers and so forth, which is a growing number. So it is important to understand that financial wellness has many aspects to it. And I think this is a useful way to look at it. And when you look at your surroundings or your company and your workplace, there may be ways to take something like this and craft it for your company. Moving on. So how do you actually go about identifying what financial wellness means for your employees? So in this case, what I did is that I 
I went into all kinds of data out there and I, I did this for, for, for HR.com. I did it for this talk because I think it is an incredibly important topic. It is so important that if we don't do something about it, it will be a regret, a huge regret for us who are in the HR and HR positions and ability to influence decisions around what we do. So how do you identify financial, what it, financial wellness means for employees? So I went to the you know, Pricewaterhouse surveys and uh, looked at other data and I want to now present that to you. So what, does, what did Pricewaterhouse say? So Kent Allison is a very interesting researcher in this and you can find his um, material on the internet. And I would strongly recommend that you take a look at it because I, I found it by just doing research. And they did a survey and asked what financial wellness really meant. And believe it or not, well, I guess we have to believe it. Nobody mentioned or very few mentioned retirement because when we think of financial wellness, the name actually came from Prudential and Morgan Stanley's of the world where they talked about retirement planning, about annuities, about 401ks. They, they were talking about those things. And now we've taken that financial wellness word and stretched it to people who are struggling for livelihood. It doesn't scale that way. Most people that need financial wellness today don't even know what it means. They're talking about how do I get money for gas? So they don't talk about retirement. And this goes back to the question of liquidity versus compounding. Most people are looking for liquidity, just $100 or $200 to make ends meet. So this to me is very, very instructive that people use terms like relief from financial stress to be debt-free, to have financial freedom. And all of these states actually precede planning for you know, retirement and so forth. So this is, I think, very, very important. In my decade of you know, talking to businesses, more than 1,500, 2,000 businesses I've talked to, large and small, they always start by saying, we need to have financial literacy. People don't know how to save money. And I don't know what to say often. So I finally started saying that to them, that you, know, you don't give a starving person a diet book. All data and research show that financial literacy doesn't work on adults or works very minimally. It has to be there. I do not disagree with that, but it doesn't really do what you think it is going to do. And ironically, in the entire history of, you know, 40 years of history of financial education, the results are there for us to see, right? We're in 2021. Another thing that, you know, that may be useful for you to see that a lot of people, um, as an entrepreneur, I have actually withdrawn from my 401k two times to start, start companies, you know, 20, 25 years ago. And uh, 401k is a great way and you get penalized and you know, so on and so forth. So, but if you're really hard up in your life, you do end up taking money out of 401k. And this is something that many employers don't want um, to do in their companies because it's, it's, it's bad. It's, it's, it's bad for the employee as well. So these are some definitions that I would like you to think about when you think of financial wellness and what it really means uh, to the workers or to the employees that are the ones that we are offering it to. So how can you identify? As I said earlier, one size doesn't fit all. I think 
at the center of it all is the employer-employee relationship. We do always say human resource. At, at the end of the day, humans are not a resource. They are the source. And we need to find a way to start a dialogue or discussion about money in workplaces. I know it is hard. I know it is not a topic that you want to talk about with employees because it can lead to all kinds of things that we don't want to talk about at work, right? We don't want to talk about religion at work or politics at work and money at work, but the first two don't hurt you. But money, people work for something. And if you can solve those little things, and there are tools now out there, and my company does that, are tools out there that you can solve that little problem, the preemptive medicine, that you can give to your employees so that they do not end up like it's almost like you know little things like Advil versus you know an antibiotic. So it's that kind of a thing. There are tools now available. So, so at the heart of it is the employer-employee relationship. You have to, we have to figure out a way to create a two-way communication, to know what your employees are going through. And those kinds of financial wellness programs are now out there, which are holistic. And I think that's where it all starts. We have to start listening. Do we know if our employees are struggling each day? Have we just made a blanket statement that I will not accept that they must, they could have a life challenge. They're just messed up and they want money. So we, we have to get over that, uh, that reasoning. And these are some of the things that, uh, you know, when you listen to employees, when you show understanding and compassion, you can actually build data for your company, for the neighborhoods where your company serves, because, you know, the zip code matters, the rents matter, the distance from work they have to drive matters, because if, they, if there's no public transportation, they will have to take an Uber if their car breaks down or some other type of transportation, they may not have money, and that may just mess up the entire day. It degrades self-esteem team, it destroys the sort of respect, self-respect that you have, the dignity that you have, and all those things that come to work. And then when they come to work, they do all kinds of, you know, the well-known names like absenteeism, presenteeism, so on and so forth. And you also need to know if there are payday lenders uh, on, in, in neighborhoods, and now payday lenders have all migrated to the online world, right? They're on the internet. So they are on everybody's phone with their wonderful advertising, with their nicely packaged advertising. So all these things are there and your workers are facing them. And their aspiration is not financial wellness as you think of it, but something different. And that's, I guess, the thesis and the theme of what I'm trying to convey. So where are your users? Where are these users turning for help? So at the top here, this is the industry of check cashing and payday loan services. For, for your benefit, I didn't go into that data because I think a lot of people have now good knowledge about it. But just to frame it for you for a moment, there are $200 billion paid, paid in fees or interest income every year for the alternative financial services industry. This is not the money that the regular financial services industry or the banking industry and so on. This is money paid by people for challenges of liquidity. I need a small amount of money. Now, who is getting the $200 billion? Let me give you some stats. 
$35 billion every year are paid in overdraft fees. You write a check, you don't have money, you get hit by an overdraft. People will write a check, get hit by the overdraft, and then deal with the consequences. An overdraft can be $35. Another big one, that's $35 billion. Another big one is in many states in the US where Payday lending is banned, but title loans, auto title loan business is not there. That whole business is also billions of dollars. The single biggest possession for most people is a $3,000 to $5,000 car. And when they need $200, they end up using the title of that $5,000 car for $1,000 in loan. And the interest rates for that are exorbitant. Then there's a whole industry called buy here, pay here, pawn shops, where you can go and you know, put a watch or whatever, heirloom or whatever, and get money. Then there is a whole industry, which people have not really quantified yet. And I spent some time looking at that industry. It is the late fees that people pay. Today, if you think of any your day-to-day -day life, there will be, there will be late fees that uh, sometime or the other you'll be at a risk of paying or you might have ended up paying. And it turns out, and I did this experiment about three years ago where I stopped paying every single bill to see what happens with my utility bill, with my T-Mobile bill, with my Verizon bill, with all the bills. And in three months, I had destroyed all, all my status and stature. And I literally, you can do that. And that is what happens to millions of people. So where are users turning to today? Of course, there are the check cashers and so forth. But there is also a whole new class of industry that has popped up, the fintech industry. Not all is good. The products called Money Lion, it roars when you get money. There are products called Dave with a teddy bear. There are products called Chime. There are products called Digit. They're all there on the internet. Some good, some not so good, some really bad. But there are dozens of these products and your users are relying on them. And your users are relying, whether they call themselves a digital wallet or a challenger bank, there's a whole array of products that, is out, that are out there. But not all of them are holistic. Not all of them are interested in helping you live you know, in your day-to-day -day and grow for whatever you need to plan, which will be more near to financial wellness. They're all there to generate transactions because as you can probably surmise, in America today, over 100 million people don't have money to create deposits because they don't have savings. That's the consequence of paycheck to paycheck. That means you don't have much money to deposit in a bank. So you are automatically uninteresting to the bank system. Banking system relies on deposits. So what do they have, those 100 million people? They have transactions. And everyone wants those transactions from Visa and MasterCard on one end to all the businesses in the middle, the entire FinTech payment ecosystem. I'm from that world, so I know. So this is how these individuals are monetized. And that is where leaders in HR have to think about that are my workers being monetized? Can I institute an employer-sponsored program which will be effective and which will coexist with the products that they will use inevitably? So this is one way to think about it. And so you should know where your users are turning for help in different markets, different products are popular. This is how the whole industry works.
but all is not good. And by listening to your workers, talking to them, you can get a lot of this data. Moving on. So which financial wellness programs make the greatest impact on your employees and your company's success? A loaded question. How, as I've gone through this in the last 30, 40 minutes talking about various programs, I think the first thing that you must, and everybody can easily arrive at that conclusion, a good program is the one that allows you to deal with your day-to-day and sets you up for your you know, short-term needs and also prepares you through its own sort of structure that how to how much to spend, how much to save, how much to kind of pay for services. And it should have some capability, right? In this day and age where almost everything has been redesigned for this social uh, collaboration and communication mechanism. Why is it that financial products are not designed that way? So that the education is woven in, into, in embedded in it, their nudges, their behavioral stuff, and so on and so forth. But most importantly, if you think about it, you know, the way I think about it is that there is this you know, river or ocean, and there are millions of people who are just a little below the surface, and all they need is a helping hand so they can stop drowning. And when they stop drowning, only then can they think about what to do next. What we must understand, we must understand that there are people who can actually be taken out of this quagmire of life where they are not making enough money or whatever reason, their income volatility and so on and so forth. That little nudge, a little help in a tool can do it. The classical financial literacy doesn't work in those cases. Lectures don't work. As I said earlier, you don't give a starving person a diet book. So how do you take a user from surviving to thriving? I think the key thing that we have found in our work is telling them what is safe to spend, smart spending, analysis of spending, and do it like, you know, like, naturally as they spend, they kind of find out, oh, I could have done better and so on and forth, so forth. And also educate them on how, what is safe to save. As all of you know, there are bragging rights with spending. There are no bragging rights with saving. Nobody posts their savings accounts picture on Facebook, but you, the new sofa, the vacation, they all go on Facebook because they're bragging rights there. There are no bragging rights to savings. So you have to have that included in the product. It has to have the product, the service has to have options because the $200 billion that are being paid to the alternative financial services industry, that has to be avoided. The moment you avoided these, avoid these little tiny sort of cuts, you know, death by thousand cuts, these $20 here, $30 there, you get an increased purchasing power. Because if you're paying, if 100 million, pay, million people are paying $200 billion a year, that's $2,000 or more per year that you are wasting to these penalties, these for tiny deficits. So we need to take control of that or find ways to do that. So this is one way to look at it. And then what my company has done for the last 10 years, we invented something about nine years ago and we called it earned wage access, which allows people to earn, to access what they've earned as they earn it. 
with a guardrail built in it that they can get half of what they've earned, but not entirely, because the remaining half is rent and you know the big ticket items. And that is how we started a whole category in this industry called earned wage access. And I'm very particular, I called it earned and wage and access because it is already earned, so it's not a loan. So using that approach, we learned a lot. Almost nine years ago, when I first you know, saw a company where I went to the employer and I said to them that your employees uh, you know, look for advances and go to pay their lenders, would you let me provide a service to your workforce? where when they've earned $100, they can get 50 and I'll give them the 50 and you reimburse me at the end of the pay cycle, weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, whatever. And the employer kind of scoffed initially, but then they said, yeah, it's an interesting idea. We bring and we give advances and we are very worried when we give advances because we don't know if it's legal and all that. And are we sort of distinguishing between who to give an advance to and so forth. And that was the day, 2013, that this idea was born. And so earned wage access was the tool that we said, which allows you to solve the problem of liquidity without letting you get into trouble. So if a bill comes in for $50 and you need $50, you don't need to go and borrow it from somebody. You obviously don't have a credit card. You shouldn't take a payday loan. You shouldn't borrow from your neighbor and you shouldn't be stressing about it because you've already earned the money, but it's sitting with the employer. It was going to be paid to you two weeks later. It's almost like there's an oxygen tank but on the oxygen tank, there is no regulator. If money or payroll is oxygen, for it to be effective, you need to put a regulator. So when I need the oxygen, I can get it. It's that kind of a thinking. So this is what we started with. And you know, I'll share with you some of the data and results uh, as on this slide, because this is the last slide that I have. So with that approach, we went to different companies. And today there are more than, I think, it's listed here, more than 1,500 businesses, more than 2 million people have used the service and continue to use it. And in 2017, we were deployed in Walmart, which is the world's largest employer. And what it's amazing to see the impact on the lives of people when you let them access what is already theirs. I know there are a lot of views and you know, thoughts that will come to your mind, how can it work? And the answer to you is, when people have earned their wages, they're earning it every single day. By not giving them, letting them access it in a timely way, everything else in the world is real time, right? We pay our landlords in advance. We pay our vendors upon delivery or set terms. Our customers pay us as soon as, you know, I buy the latte at Starbucks and I give the money for that. But the barista, the person behind the counter waits two weeks to get paid. Why? There is no logic. That is the one who's suffering the most. If they can access 20%, 30% of the money they've already earned, they won't get into the worst situation, the needless debt situation. I'm not questioning anything else. I'm saying debt that is needless caused by late fees and penalties is not necessary. We can solve it by giving earned wage access or ac timely access to earned wages. And that is the sort of financial wellness foundation that we launched and that's what I do and uh, the results across companies are astounding when it started I didn't know this would happen turnover was down 36 60 40 percent in many companies there was a study done in Louisiana at Baton Rouge General Hospital when they deployed this service recruitment goes up because companies are competing with gig 
jobs like drive for Grubhub, Instacart, and so forth, or Uber. Now companies can offer a service that as you can earn as you, you can get access to money as you earn a portion thereof. And it is all done in a very sophisticated way that they get access with guardrails. They can find ways to spend it and save it. And the entire service that the way we did it is we made it free. We give you a visa card with it. And so it was free. So it's really nothing. It costs the employer nothing, the employee nothing. And they start building their life. There are no lectures given to people. It's all part of the software. It helps people build confidence. They get like a banking service on their fingertips in a very sophisticated, beautiful app. And when the behavior is positive and going in the right direction, it is rewarded. They get points and so on and so forth. So these are some of the ways that many of you who are thinking about financial wellness can institute it. Um, my company has nine, 10 years of experience. I live and breathe this every single day. This is my purpose. And what I've shared with you is all the data, some of the data, some of the thinking that goes with it. And I do not know what we will do in the next two, three, four years, but every day we are figuring ways to find tools and techniques for help to help workers at all levels, young, old, low income, higher income, to find ways to help them to achieve financial wellness. But until then, my belief is that there are millions of people who are struggling for livelihood. First, let's also focus on them. These are the people who are surviving and then we can help them take to thriving. So with that, I will uh, kind of look at some of the questions. I don't have any more material and I'll look to see if there are any questions. And if, um, um, Esten, if you would like to bring up a question that I can answer, I'm happy to do that. We have 15 minutes. I left 15 minutes for us to. The one big question that I see is that um, how can it be implemented in a smaller uh, environment? So uh, there is no, you know, we work with companies which are at the size of Walmart and so forth and work with companies which have five, 10, 20, 50. We prefer to have companies which have a few number of employees because otherwise um, it's not as effective. The easiest thing is there's really nothing to do. Uh, my company actually has access to their hourly data, time and attendance data. We put up the money, we give the money to the employee and you as an employer has to reimburse us. Uh, as a model and in a regulatory environment, we, are, we have an approval order for all the regulations that go with it. And there are options for people to not have to pay anything if they use our card, as I mentioned, and they can pay their bills. So in our model, they can pay their bills right from the app. They can start a savings program with a few keystrokes and they can do spend analysis, what they're you know, purchasing and so forth because there's a card attached to it. They can also link another bank account and see how their entire sort of net, um, whatever their economic situation is, there was little savings account somewhere and so forth. They can add it all together. So in a small environment, no problem. It can be easily deployed. Uh, we work in many school districts. We work in, um, warehouses, call centers, hundreds and hundreds of senior living centers and hospitals and very, very large employers in various categories in health, uh, healthcare, hospitality, restaurants, and so forth. 
So these, this is the one big question that I wanted to answer. Then there's another one. Uh, somebody wanted to know about the debit card. The, there's, the, it's a virtual, it's an instant issue debit card. It can be issued inside the app instantaneously. And if they lose it, we send it to you for free. Uh, at the end of the day, um, when I, and this is specific to my company and not to kind of pitch my product, uh, we are a B Corp, which means that we have a value system which is above you know, everything. And we are a public benefit corporation. We run our own nonprofit organization. And over the years, we've built this uh, whole sort of mindset that we are here to serve the employees of the businesses that partner with us. And you know, our effort has, has been useful. It has helped millions of people. There are many videos out there. And if you go to our um, website uh, here, you can uh, learn uh, much more. Um, there's a question about any experience with government. Um, we all have experience with government, but that was my flippant answer. Uh, we have worked with school districts and we have worked and it took two and a half years to get the people soft system to talk to our system. Um, and uh, and uh, governments typically buy through partners or through a single source. And because we are very unique, uh, there are ways that uh, you can get that uh, directly from us, but then there are companies and partners. We partner with all major payroll companies like ADP, UKG, Kronos, Ultimate, Paychecks, uh, any company, you name it, we partner with them because we move money back and forth on behalf of payroll. And we partner with the time and attendance entire, and we work with POS systems of various types. So, you know, government organizations are no different. If they work with a particular vendor, we can partner with that vendor and bring this service to them. I mean, it was interesting when the you know, shutdown happened. A lot of people were looking for money and because they were not getting paid. And I was, I was sitting there watching TV and saying, I wish there was a way we could work with them. So these are the thoughts that come to mind. Um, there's another final question that I'll answer. It's uh, you know 10 minutes to 11, um, which is how do you achieve a balanced program that encourages better financial decisions? So this is a very important point, and I, 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 you know, within the time allotted to me, I want to answer it very thoughtfully. So we operate with this assumption that when people have access to money, they will somehow misuse it. And it may be true in some cases, but what really happens is, it, think of it like binging versus grazing. If you are starved for the whole day, and you were given a meal at the end of the day, you will end up eating two, 3,000 calories at the end of the day because by that time you're in the starvation mode. But if you had access to small amount of food during the course of the day, this is what happens in good financial wellness. Do not let the individual get into the equivalent of a starvation mode. So my answer to you is that instead of worrying about whether they'll misuse it, let them access what they've earned. Let them live the life that they have earned and they will know how to manage it. If somebody makes $15, when I used to make $15 an hour in a graduate school environment and so on, I knew how to spend within that. My issue was never uh, lack of money. My issue was that I didn't have money when I needed it. 
So the key point is when they need it and they've earned it, let them access it because you're not doing no one a favor. It's their money anyway. It's just the way the system is. And if you want to learn more about it, you should you know, maybe look, take a look at my book and some of my talks because I've talked about it. Because who, who owes whom here? The employer owes the employee or the employee owes the employer, right? We could have a raging debate on that. So these are the ways to look at it. Some another question was about final question, I think, and unless the hr.com folks want me to answer one more, uh, was about uh, retirement. What happens in the 401k when people borrow from 401k? So data shows that when you institute a financial wellness program where employees have access to their earned wages in a timely fashion, like what I described to you, then they do not need to go to a 401k. Because remember, their need may be $25 and a 401k withdrawal, they will be tempted to take $1,000, $2,000, $3,000. The psychology is very well understood. And you know, I'll give you an example. If you walk to an ATM machine, which has a $4 surcharge and you have no choice but to take money, will we take, and there's another ATM where there is no fee, on which ATM would you take more money from? It turns out, that when there is a fee, people take the most money. And when there isn't a fee, they take the least amount of money or the money they need for that time. Same thing goes with credit. When you're looking for credit, your entire psyche is driving you towards maximizing the credit. If you're approved for $1,000, you say, why not 1,500? You advertise 2,000, you gave me 1,000. Then you call them and you say, my credit report is better, right? That is how your psyche works. When it's credit, you take the most. That is what is trouble in life. When it's your own money, you take the least. This behaviorally so simple, but counterintuitive. So I guess I have six more minutes. I've been instructed through the chat window. And I can take a couple of more questions. Let's see. Are you working with schools, colleges? I answered it. Yes, we do. Uh, San Diego School District and a um, lot of schools, uh, some universities too. And that is fascinating. You know, the school college issue is very interesting. Some, some of you may know that. It's a nine month uh, work year. What happens to the janitor in the remaining three months when the kids are not in school? What is the janitor doing? How is the janitor earning their money? So these are the kind credits, uh, okay. What is a good strategy to use when discussing helping employees with the C-suite? That is a very interesting question. It's 10.54, so I'll try to give it a two minute or less answer. Contrary to what one would think, when I started this, I call it almost a you know, purpose-driven movement 10 years ago, nine years ago, I went to the C-suite and I found them to be the most thoughtful and welcoming in it. And they were found it easiest to understand. The three things they care about, See, remember one thing when you're talking to the C-suite or any level. 
A business is built on the shoulders of its employees. Any data which shows that your employee and workforce is doing well means that your customers are also going to do well. It is just, it's a given thing. Businesses live and die on the altar of their customer and they want happy employees and you know, look at Southwest Airline and so forth. There's plenty of data which says that if you take care of your employees, they do well. So whatever case you build, you have to build it around three major tenets. It, retention is a big one, but you know, these are expenses without an invoice, right? If retention is low and people are moving back and forth. Why are they going? Why are they leaving? So it turns out that most, in most cases, they're leaving because they could get a job for a slightly higher salary or they ended up in a financially stressful situation and they just couldn't deal with anymore or so on and so forth. So use these three arg arguments that these three expenses without an invoice, recruitment, retention, and engagement can be impacted significantly. That's one. Number two, in the new class of services, financial wellness services like what we do, there is no change in treasury cost. So the salary that is going to be paid every two weeks continues to get paid every two weeks. No change because there's a third party which is actually moving the money back and forth. Third thing is if it doesn't cost anything to the employee because companies like us, we make money on their spend. When they take the $100 and spend it, then we make it on the interchange of the card and so forth. And the fees are so nominal that they are not price sensitivity is very low because you're comparing $35 payday loan versus a $1 fee or something like that, if at all. So these are the things that should be mentioned to a C-suite. It will improve recruitment, retention, and engagement. It will also improve the overall customer service, customer experience because employees would be happy. These are the ways to do it. Otherwise, there's a lot of stuff that you know, we have in blogs and our website and material that we can provide. Payactive is in the United States, Payactive is in Australia, and Payactive is soon about, to, soon I think in Philippines. Uh, we work with all the major call centers, so they are in these some of these countries. Uh, Payactive and variants of Payactive are now popping up everywhere because I find it fascinating. But this idea is now, it works. I'm very pleased that it works and it works very well. It allows me to kind of see the this whole spectrum from livelihood to financial wellness. It allows me to see a side of our society and our country, which is actually most people don't know. They know it in buzzwords. They know it in jargon. They know it by people don't have $400 in an emergency. We work with them. And uh, I think um, uh, this is something needed across the world, but our focus is on the United States and we partner with you know, people in different countries also. Canada is another country that we are, I think we are live now, going live very soon. Thank you very much. Uh, I will uh, yield my remaining one and a half minutes. I'd like to thank our presenter as well as all of you for joining us today. If you'd like to view this webcast again, the archive recording will be available on the hr.com website within 24 hours. The webcast credit will show in your hr.com account within two business days and we'll also send you an email with your credit information. Your feedback is important to us. Please take a moment to fill out the exit survey that opened in a new browser page on your computer. This concludes our webcast. Enjoy the rest of your day.
Thank you.